I said that I would do bi-weekly uploads for the month of December, but I couldn't leave you all hanging. I'm Dr. Ashley Farley, a sociologist at the University of Kent. I hope you enjoy this lecture, the third in my series on why you should think about social problems as myths. This is on moral panics. What are they? Is everyone in society panicking? What phenomena do we need to observe to say that something is a moral panic? Patrons this week get access to the full lecture. I hope you enjoy. Okay, so we're going to look at another framework to help us to recognize when perhaps we may be in the midst of a panic. For a number of reasons, I want to be very careful with this framework because it's so easy to use incorrectly. And I think whenever I get something and students use the word moral panic, it's, it's invariably not the actual theory of moral panic. It's kind of like everybody in society is panicking. <laughs> and that's not what moral panic theory is about. So we're going to go through this in detail, but and there's a lot of overlap between social problem theory and moral panic theory. So if you really like this, it's okay, because we will use aspects of it. Okay, so we're going to describe the moral panic framework, define five criteria necessary for an issue to be considered a moral panic, and reflect on what facets of issues make them anxiety-inducing, and describe three contemporary examples of public health panics. Okay, so... The quintessential example of a moral panic is the satanic panic. The satanic panic started with a book published in the early 1980s called Michelle Remembered, right there. Um, and it was based on a now discredited practice of hypnosis to discover supposedly repressed memories. Um, but this was widely accepted at the time and the authority of the experts um, really made it difficult to overturn some of this uh, information. And in fact, the idea of repressed memory is something really common now, even in the cultural zeitgeist. Um, and it came from this period and it caused a ton, a ton of problems. The idea that you were actually abused, but you repressed the memory and then you have to go and uncover the memories caused all sorts of issues because human memory is incredibly susceptible to suggestion. And so there are all sorts of terrible, terrible stories that where people were like adamant they remembered something happening and it transpired later and it, it was not possible to have happened. And so it was very, it's a very important case study to remember because at the time you could not question it. I mean, it was like, we believe the children. How dare you not believe the children? How dare you blame the victims? And so people were kind of if there was a lot of criticism, there was a lot of skepticism. People didn't all believe this, but the climate was such that it was difficult to question it. So it went on for like 15 years and a lot of people had their lives utterly destroyed by this. It's a really, really sad story. And there's like someone who just got out of jail in like 2014. It's quite sad. Um, so there was all sorts of panic and it started with the Christian Right. Uh, Christian fundamentalists as well that kind of latched onto this. And it went all the way into like the 2000s Pokemon. You still see aspects of this a little bit now where people think there's like a satanic conspiracy amongst um, people like Lady Gaga. You've heard that before. If you go on YouTube, it's very interesting. Where people were analyze Lady Gaga videos for satanic imagery and um, award shows are actually big satanic rituals. So it still exists. It still still exists in the undercurrents of society. It goes back much, much further than this. But it, it blew up in the 1980s. Dungeons and Dragons was very popular. At the time, uh, gothic subcultures were very popular. So you had people like my brother who bought the Satanic Bible to be like really edgy. And he's got 
you know, telling me Satanism is the way forward. Actually, it's just freedom of the individual, you know, being edgy teenagers. And this became part of this big panic that there was this satanic cult that was taking over the upper echelons of government and kidnapping and sacrificing tons of babies. Um, there were estimates that hundreds of thousands of babies were disappearing every year, which obviously doesn't match up with reality, but that was the estimate um, in order to be sacrificed to a satanic cult. And I remember this myself watching um, daytime TV shows with my mom and my mom had <gasps> clutching her pearls and that sort of thing. And people were like sincerely recalling having been uh, satanically ritually abused um, from hypnosis sessions. So that's, that's a, a lot, where a lot of the, these stories were coming from. Also suggestive practices on the part of um, self-self experts of satanic ritual abuse. So this emerged in the 80s and 90s, and it emerged against the cultural backdrop of a preoccupation with cults and the occult, self-proclaimed Satanists, movies like The Exorcist. But also there were deeper rumblings of uncertainties about gender roles in society, so say sociologists who studied this. And so there was uncertainty about the new-ish dual earner model, where women would go out to work and so would men. And the children would not be supposed and be raised by uh, other carers in daycare settings. And so there were a lot of panics surrounding daycares generally. And I still see this sometimes now where there, there, there's a lot of criticism of women who go out to work and put their children in daycares. Like, oh, you don't know the risks that you're putting your child under. And so there was part of this as well. A growing demand for childcare outside of the home that led to a panic surrounding um, whether or not those daycare centers could be trusted when the true role of the woman was to raise the children. And so you could see this um, initially in who took hold, what special interest groups took hold of these um, claims about satanic ritual abuse, mainly fundamentalist Christians. But then it moved to, well, it started with um, some a professional who claimed to have discovered satanic ritual abuse and who had done the uh, early hypnosis um, that led to that book. But a Christian fundamentalist groups picked it up. And then you had a lot of professionals that get, began to be trained in recognizing satanic ritual abuse. And this is where it really exploded. You had training programs to recognize the signs. So when there was a murder, you would go and you would look for signs of the occult in, on the murder scene and things like that. that. And so they were, the police start looking for any element of like child sacrifice. There was a child who unfortunately was attacked by a dog. Her parents found her, rushed her to the hospital, and unfortunately, she passed away. And the police came and investigated the parents and found um, supposedly occult books in, on their bookshelf, and then developed this whole story about how they had actually uh, ritually um, sacrificed their daughter. And that those parents went to jail. Uh, another example is Amanda Knox. The lead investigator in Italy was trained in recognizing satanic ritual abuse, and he had a history of doing that. He always was saying, oh, this was an example. And that was the original theory of the crime, that, that she had been killed, that um, Meredith Kircher had been killed in, in the midst of um, a satanic sex ritual. And they had, like toned it down over time because it's crazy. But that was the first theory. So... Um, this idea spread all around the world. And the interesting thing is that it takes time to cross linguistic divides. So it was big in America. 
And then you had groups, uh, Americans, uh, American experts who then developed training programs for British experts. So then it jumped the ocean and came to the UK. But it took a really long time for people to go back to their home countries and translate those claims into Italian. And so, so that's why it was like 2007 that you had a, an Italian prosecutor after the long after the satanic panic had died down, it pops up in Italy because it takes time. This is diffusion, diffusion of social problems. Um, so uh, training of people in recognizing satanic ritual abuse was a massive part of the proliferation of claims. So people started to believe that if you had problems, it was down to either being satanically ritually abused when you were a child and having repressed the memory or just being abused as a child and having repressed the memory. And so lots of psychologists were trained to look for this specifically. And this caused issues as well because they weren't looking for other potential causes of issues that people might have. So as I said, it kicked off with a book called Michelle Remembers, which was written by psychologist Lawrence Pasner and his wife, Michelle Smith. Um, so they later married after um, these hypnosis se uh, sessions. And so they did these hypnotic regressions in which she recounts horrific childhood abuse at the hands of the Church of Satan. It became a bestseller, even though it was almost immediately debunked. And this is the tricky thing about these things. Because they get become powerful, not necessarily on the basis of truth, but because they speak to the zeitgeist, the spirit of the time, and worries that people already have, they tend to go out of control in spite of criticism. So there was criticism right in the very beginning, but it was totally ignored. And then 10 years later, all of a sudden, the criticism knows that this has been discredited. It was discredited from the start, but it kind of has to run its course. These things, they tend to come in waves. They tend to be very volatile. They come and everyone kind of like expresses their frustration through the medium of this issue. And then it recedes and it can come again. I've seen a few times where, well, you, you are kind of aware of it, so it's kind of bubbling back up into the zeitgeist. It can come again. Um, so it sparked allegations of satanic ritual abuse across North America, particularly in childcare settings, um, which were already experiencing a panic about sexual abuse. So professionals who were trained in recognizing ritual abuse emerged almost immediately and were involved in investigating the allegation. Um, they, later, they were later found to approach children via coercive investigative techniques. Um, so they had an idea in their mind already of what was going on. And with the best of intentions, use methods of interviewing that coach the children into saying things. And children, we have this, again, we have this cultural idea that children are the epitome of innocence and children never lie and they're like little cherubs and so on. But children also have a very strong desire to please adults. And that was insufficiently recognized. And so they were saying a lot of things that we now know were just saying what the adults wanted to hear. So the allegations were extremely outlandish. For example, that abusers could fly, that they flushed them down toilets. Um, in one daycare setting I mentioned to you um, last term, uh, they claimed there were tunnels underneath the school. There were, of course, no tunnels underneath the school. So the, the allegations were verifiably false. But there was a strong moral imperative to believe the children nonetheless, and a cultural aversion to calling victims, especially children, liars. To be, appear to be questioning these stories was to call children liars, and nobody wanted to do that. And people who did were subject to a lot of criticism. And so there was a, and the article that I showed you last term is a good example of somebody who was being critical, but in a nice way, like 
the, the journalist clearly didn't believe it. It was quite late in the satanic panic. It was just making its way up into Canada. And they're saying, this probably didn't happen, but this person's obviously suffering. We should help this person anyway, which was probably a good way of doing it. Um, but it, it can be very, very difficult to criticize something when people are panicking and people are talking a lot about the enormous and detailed suffering of victims. And so this is why it became so powerful. And it had an enormous impact. As I said, it spread around the world. Um, and there were prominent trials and convi convictions. Uh, most convictions have since been overturned, overturned. But what's interesting is that a lot of people pleaded guilty just to end the torture of the trials. And in that way, it's similar to the earlier satanic panic, which was the Salem witch trials, where a lot of people pled, pleaded guilty to avoid the horror of being tortured anymore. Um, and some trials lasted years and convicted spent between 10 and 20 years in prison. Many served full sentences and a lot of immigrants were deported upon release. So a lot of parents who had come from Mexico, for example, were deported and they've not been allowed back into the United States, even after you know, years of um, recognition that uh, this was a panic. So by the early 1990s, the outlandishness of the claims led to growing public skepticism. So here's the interesting thing is that it's not that the whole of the culture was convinced that this was going on. It's not that the whole of society really believed in it, but there were certain groups in society that were organized and were exerting a lot of pressure and it made it difficult for skepticism to be expressed. And so the public kind of passively assented to it. They're like, oh, is that thing kind of happening? And when, you know, parents would watch, their adults would watch the news, they'd be like, come on. But that was it, really. And I, so the, for panic to be a panic doesn't mean that the whole of the culture is experienced like mass delusion or something like that. Most people were actually quite critical. But that criticism didn't make an impact, which is interesting. And we have to be careful when we talk about social issues, when we assume that because something is being panicked about in the media, that people on the ground are actually worried and panicking. So I mentioned that before, that I'm actually kind of skeptical that the whole culture of fear created by the government on the part on, about COVID actually succeeded in scaring most people. Like, I personally wasn't afraid myself. Um, I mean, I because I, I looked at the risk profile and I was like, I'd be pretty damn unlucky if something really bad happened to me. I'm going to be careful so that I don't hurt somebody else. I think most people kind of thought that. It made sense. Um, but I don't think most of society was panicking. So when people make claims that, oh, the government has damaged people's psyches, maybe some people, yeah. But I don't think the whole society needs to actually be fearful for something to be panic. It's just that the moral thing to do is to be afraid. You were, that's what you were supposed to express. I remember explaining, I was like, oh, it's annoying that the gyms are closed down. As, um, you know, I'm fine. But I understand. I'll, I'm not personally afraid of getting COVID, but I'll not go to the gym so that I don't spread it if I do get it. And I remember just being like absolutely trashed online for saying that. And I was like, why? And I realized because I said I wasn't afraid. But you weren't, at that point, you were supposed to be fearful, which I thought was a bit weird. So it's not that people actually are fearful or panicking in society. It's some groups in society have organized to such an extent that they're able to at least get passive assent on the part of populations, that people don't feel compelled to organize against it. Because something like this, no one can be like, um, you know, a group of concerned Satanists, like no one's going to organize an opposition. They're just going to say, yeah, I mean, bad people are bad. So yeah, do something about that. 
That's it. And then something like this can, um, can carry on. So why do we need to understand this? Obviously, understanding the past avoids its repetition. But it also illustrates a number of key aspects of, of moral panics that are not frequently appreciated. They played, it played on extant cultural preoccupations and allowed for the expression of certain fears in society that could not be expressed in other ways. So it was not socially acceptable for Christian fundamentalists to outright, although they did, um, to outright criticize women for neglecting their duties as housewives and as carers, as primary caregivers of children. They did do that, but the media didn't repeat their claims. It just stayed in their own circles. But through the medium of satanic ritual abuse, these claims acquired more impact and they spread more widely. Which was, and Now keep in mind, I don't think that Christian fundamentalists were like, aha, we're gonna criticize women through this like satanic narrative. No, I think they, the claims emerged from psychologists and they were like, yeah, see, see, you ladies, you put your kids in daycare and you put them in the hands of Satanists, you know? I think they truly believed it. But why did they believe it? Because they thought that there was something wrong already. And this narrative came up and it gave them a reason for the, a fear they already had. So it gave voice to these uncertainties in society. And that's why it kind of spread. And of course, uh, special interest groups were highly organized. Without organization, things usually stop. You need to have somebody organized to keep an issue in the public eye. The media are fickle. They like new things. That's why it's called the news. <laughs> if a story is old, they don't want to hear anything more about it. So if you want to talk to the media about an issue that you care about, and it's been in the, it was in the news last week, it's too late. And you, you can pitch an article to The Guardian. You can go and look up the email address of someone from The Guardian. You can say, hey, this, this thing was in the news last week. And I've got, you know, I really want to say this about it. And they'll be like, yeah, that was last week. So what you have to do is have to say, this, I've got this new angle on it because this new thing happened that gives it new importance. You have to consciously do that to convince an editor that it warrants being reported again. Human beings have to do that. Reality doesn't just speak to an editor. That, oh, yes, this is a big issue. Human beings have to organize and put forward ideas, and they have to have an interest in keeping the story alive, which is why I was very skeptical about Partygate, because the media focused on that for like a month and a half. I think I was talking about it in December. Like, that's a bit weird. Media don't focus on things that long. So I knew somebody was coordinating to keep the issue alive. New information was found. New pictures emerge. What? Where did the new pictures emerge? Just out of the ether, dropped down an editor's desk. Somebody was sitting on those pictures. You know, some people say it's Dominic Cummings. Anyways, so these sorts of things, they require organization because the media doesn't focus on something for very long. They like new things. So if it's in the news for a long time, you can be pretty darn sure there's some organized group in society that is keeping it there. And it's not a conspiracy. You just have to go and look at the news articles and you'll see Concerned Parents Against Satanism has released new, a new survey that they conducted. That's one way of keeping the issue in the public eye. Okay, so the public are not necessarily duped en masse. They may actually even be skeptical. And that there's a thin line between myths, rumors, urban legends, and social problems. There were aspects of the satanic panic that involved blood libel against Jews way back to the ninth century. And so that's an old, old myth, or actually an old aspect of, of folklore generally that gets repeated. 
and gets repeated through supposedly scientific data about a new form, a new psychological technique for undercover and past trauma. So moral panics over urban legends um, have a lot of overlap. So they draw, they both draw on the cultural repertoire. So the existing ideas, the collection of ideas and beliefs about what matters and um, what, uh, what we're afraid of and different kind of cultural fears and anxieties and beliefs and values and norms and so on. And so we can study moral panics to find out about culture. So why study the satanic panic? To find out what kind of culture supposedly technologically advanced believed that there were Satanists who were able to make children levitate, flush them down toilets. That's really interesting from a sociological perspective. What kind of culture does that? Why? And there's all sorts of reasons that you can bring in. Um, so, for instance, urban legends will draw on beliefs like there's a whole genre of urban legends about evil corporations. Um, so contaminating food, like the whole McDonald's thing of like, look, this food doesn't rot. What are they putting in our food? Um, and this is uh, because of a cultural thing, a cultural um, kind of motif called the Goliath effect, um, a distrust of bigness. Uh, particularly American culture, but Anglo-American cultures generally have a distrust of bigness, big business. Um, anything that's too big, we think, oh, you must be too powerful. And so we become fearful. For example, rumors that jockey underwear put chemicals in his underpants to make men sterile. That was uh, an urban legend that came up some years ago. Why? Because that's just what evil corporations would do. Right? When you're in the realm of urban legend, whenever you, or, or moral panic, whenever you hear like, they do this. And you ask why, and people say, well, just because they're evil. That's the folk devil. That's the folk devil aspect of moral panics. They'll show you in a moment, because that's just what bad people do. Ah, uh, we're probably in the realm of moral panic. We're probably in the realm of legend. So while the satanic panic was demonstrably false, not all moral panics are entirely based on delusion. So we have to be careful here. When you say that something is a moral panic, you're not necessarily saying it's not true and doesn't ever happen. You are saying that there is disproportion, that we believe it happens much more frequently than it does, or that it, than it very likely does. And the threat may even be genuine, and people may genuinely be harmed, but the alarm raised is disproportionate. And then you might say, well, well then why does it matter? Why be crotchety? Why, why try to be critical? If it, so what if people are over the top? Isn't it better to be safe than sorry? Because there's not just one panic. There are tons. You open up a, a newspaper and every single day you are bombarded with new things you are being invited to panic about. And so you get this idea, I am terribly at risk. I am not safe. And you can be susceptible to, or um, governments who will come and say, I will keep you safe. <laughs> that could happen. That has happened in the past. Um, but there's not necessarily any reason to be fearful um, ab above and beyond when you go out as a, um, a young person, you know, if you live in a nice area, the crime rate is probably low. You're highly unlikely to just be a victim of random violence. But crime tends to be patterned. We get just a really bad idea of crime and social problems. We think, oh, well, these things just happen because people are evil. But if you actually go and talk to criminals, they have reason for what they do. It may not be a good reason. We may not agree with it. But there is some logic there. 
Urban legends and moral panics tempt us to believe that evil people do evil things just for the sake of it. And therefore, it's very hard to protect against it. It sows distrust. It makes us distrust our fellow citizens. It can lead to misanthropy. So that is distrust of humanity in general. We have to be careful about being overly pessimistic, even if it is just to be safe. So it's important to understand to sum up, moral panics are not always based entirely on delusion. Harms may be real, but the point is that it's disproportionate. And the argument is that this can affect the fabric of society if we are constantly being encouraged to be fearful of each other um, and we lose sense of the patterns that are actually involved in social issues. Okay, I'm going to give you a quick break and we're going to go into key elements of all panics. So I'm quite worried about the satanic panic coming back, actually, because we're in a, at a point in society where it can be very personally risky to speak out when people are panicking. And I've noticed that there's always this thing we call it um, position issues. There's some things that people just always disagree about. And it's an impasse. You can't get past it. Like, um, well, yeah, I'm not going to say it. But there's a particular issue that everybody just disagrees on. And they will not change their mind. And so I've noticed that when you come to these impasses now, there's been this tendency to try to make those, push those people out of public life. And that's a bit scary because we do need voices in criticism sometimes. Visit patreon.com slash Ashley A. Frawley for part two.